Today's reading is from Acts 20 and um, it's on page 1726 of the Church Bibles and it's also on the screen to follow along. When the uproar had ended, Paul sent for the disciples and after encouraging them, said goodbye and set out for Macedonia. He travelled through that area, speaking many words of encouragement to the people and finally arrived in Greece where he stayed three months. Because some Jews had plotted against him, just as he was about to sail for Syria, he decided to go back through Macedonia. He was accompanied by Sopater, son of Pyrrhus from Berea, Aristarchus and Secundus from Thessalonica, Gaius from Derby, Timothy also, and Tychicus and Tropimus from the province of Asia. These men went on ahead and waited for us at Troas. But we sailed from Philippi after the festival of unleavened bread and five days later joined the others at Troas, where we stayed seven days. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, kept on talking until midnight. There were many lamps in the upstairs room where we were meeting. Seated in a window was a young man named Eutychus, who was sinking into a deep sleep as Paul talked on and on. When he was sound asleep, he fell to the ground from the third story and was picked up dead. Paul went down, threw himself on the young man and put his arms around him. Don't be alarmed, he said. He's alive. Then he went upstairs again and broke bread and ate. After talking until daylight, he left. The people took the young man home alive and were greatly comforted. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived at, off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, from the first day I came into the province of Asia. I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock, of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. 
Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved the most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. It was a long passage, well read, thank you so much. Um, Because our kids grew up with Bible stories, it meant that in summer holidays, whereas other families would play in the pool, Marco Polo or volleyball, we would play biblical characters' entries into the pool. So this is how it went. The kids had to pick a biblical character and act it out as they jumped into the pool and the rest of us had to guess it. So some of them were very easy. You know, Jesus, Lazarus, okay. If you don't know the story, come next week. Um, but Narelle's favourite one was... Eutychus, right? Eutychus. Who is in Acts 20? Eutychus is Narelle's favourite character in the Bible, which is a little disconcerting for me. Uh, Yes. But he's there in Acts 20. Application, preach until someone dies. I think we need to pray. (laughs) Our Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Help us to understand it, and please, uh, may, in as much as this word's been an encouraging one for me, may it be so for everyone here, um, as we work out with you what shepherding means. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so this is the final instalment in our series about pastoral leadership or shepherding in the Bible. Recap, so first we heard from Ezekiel, God was against Israel's shepherds in the past because they didn't care for the flock. And God said, I myself will come and will shepherd my people. Then we heard that the person that shepherds God's people is Jesus, the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. He speaks, the sheep follow his voice. They hear him, they follow him. And he remains the chief shepherd of all who believe in him. Today, he's the chief shepherd of every believer. Does this mean there's no place for any other shepherds after he has come? No, because last week from 1 Peter 5, when Jeff Lynn spoke, you would have heard that there is still um, a savage wolf, the devil, who's prowling around looking for someone to devour. There needs to be shepherds who shepherd the flock, elders who shepherd the flock in the manner of the Lord Jesus himself. As to what that precisely means, what, what it involves, what the content of that looks like, 
now we go to Acts chapter 20. As Paul expands on his charge to the elders, be shepherds of the church of God. Now, in, in this chapter, we hear from the great apostle to the Gentiles, the great church planter, Paul himself. What he does is he gives us his final leadership training seminar to the elders of a church that he himself planted. This is a wonderful passage, and it's interesting how it's prefaced by this story of Eutychus. Isn't that interesting? Um, uh, let's think about that for a moment. I think this story is a surprising one. Surprising not because Eutychus fell asleep while Paul droned on and on into the night. You can just imagine it, can't you? Maybe you've felt that way yourself. You have a, uh, you know, a degree of sympathy, understanding, with, connection with Eutychus. Don't tell me. Uh, anyway, and not, neither do I think it was surprising that Eutychus was be able to be brought back to life. What I think is surprising is what Paul does after Eutychus has been restored to life. Did you hear it? What does he do? You know, someone dead from his preaching and then comes back to life. What does he do? He keeps going. He keeps going. Now, I, I once um, preached at a, a, you know, was conducting a wedding and it went on for a long time. I, I wasn't meant to be doing it. The guy who did it cracked his collarbone and suddenly I was wheeled in at the last minute. It was the wedding from hell, right? It was 45 degrees and the bride was really late and, you know, the mother-in-law wanted to sing all these songs. It was terrible. Anyway, and, um, and they reorganised the whole, the whole order of things so that the bridal party was standing up in this, you know, perspiring, you know, right until the end. So I was delivering my talk and they were standing up and one of the bridesmaids fainted and did a face plant right in the middle of my sermon. It was very clear to me that is the time to end the sermon, right? <laughs> very, very clear. Not for Paul. Not for Paul. He keeps going. keeps going till morning. Why? What's going on? What's so important? He has to keep preaching all night. Well, the answer is that Paul has been revisiting the churches that he's been planting, he's planted, and he's been trying to strengthen them. And because he knows that he will not see them again, he's giving them his last final instructions and encouragement. And in the second half of the chapter, Luke records in what's the only sermon in the book of Acts to Christians. Luke records Paul's words as his final instruction and encouragement for the church in Ephesus. And just so we'll grasp how important it is, Luke prefaces his account with a story of what happens to Eutychus as Paul speaks. Now, what's the, what's the point of that? Well, what it's saying is Paul's words, because Eutychus's death, life, a sandwich between Paul speaking, Paul speaking, right? And that come, then comes, you know, Paul's words to the Ephesian elders. I, th I think this is there to make us remember that what Paul's about to speak are words of life and death, spiritual life and death, because they are life-giving words from a life-giving God. And what happened to Eutychus happens to people who listen to God's words through Paul. They come to life spiritually. Okay, so... Paul passes on instructions to the elders, a matter of spiritual life and death for the flock. The main command is verse 28. Please have a look. So you'll need your Bibles open. This is one of those talks you really need, do need your Bible open. The outline is in your leaflet and we'll be going through in detail. The main command is verse 28 where Paul, speaking to the 
elders of the church in Ephesus tells them, keep watch over yourselves and over all the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Keep watch. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he has bought with his own blood. Paul himself can no longer be the chief shepherd of the Ephesian church. So now what he's doing is he's passing on his role onto the elders. Now just notice there's an interchangeability of a few words, elder, overseer, and shepherd. We hear these words, we might get confused. They're, they're really interchangeable. Paul reminds the elders that the Holy Spirit has made them overseers or bishops, that's the word, that is the ones who look after, look over the flock, right? And their job, not the job of someone with a funny hat, but their job, the elder's job, is to shepherd or pastor the flock. So the elders are overseers and their job is to shepherd, which is where we get the word pastor from. Now, usually today we call the elder who is paid by the church the pastor. That would be me, right? But here we see that eldership or shepherding role, that role belongs not just to the paid person, but to a whole group of elders who are collectively to pastor or to shepherd the flock. And here the apostle unpacks what shepherding God's church involves by describing what he himself has done and then by charging the elders to do the same. This is the Apostle Paul's leadership training seminar, okay? Now, it's obviously, it's applicable to someone like myself or Mark, uh, who are paid, um, but not just us, to everyone who holds a shepherding role in our church, whether that's to your family, whether that's in your ministry, or whether that's in your growth group, it's relevant for you. It's, a, it's relevant for anyone who might become an elder in the future, it's relevant for every believer so that they'll know how to pray for those who are elders in their church. So here's the question. How does an elder shepherd the church of God? How does a pastor pastor the church of God? Now, essentially, Paul says three things. Number one, always teach the gospel. This will occupy most of the time of the talk, right? Always teach the gospel. Secondly, guard the flock, Third, use the word of grace. Always teach the gospel, guard the flock, use the word of grace. First, always teach the gospel. Verses 20 to 27. Now, this is really important we get our heads around this because sometimes in our language, we um, separate the words teaching from pastoring. So we might say of one particular elder, um, they're more pastoral, they've got more pastoral gifts as opposed to the other person who's better at teaching. So normally what we mean by that is that they're better with emotional intelligence, they're good at listening, they're good at connecting with people, being prayerful. In the language of Acts 20, that's not being pastoral, that's just being Christian, like all of us are meant to grow in that. But here in Acts 20, Paul fleshes out what, the, what pastoring looks like and he actually refers to teaching people. So the thing that categories that we pull apart, he puts together. He uses five words for teaching. First of all, there's preaching, verse 20. You know, I haven't hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. Teaching, uh, verse 20, you, I've taught you publicly from house to house. Declaring, verse 21, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks they must turn to God in repentance. Uh, testifying, my only aim, verse 24, is to, to finish the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. 
proclaiming, verse 27, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So at its heart, he's saying shepherding involves teaching and preaching. That means opening the Bible and teaching your way through it. That's why at church our standard diet is to move through books of the Bible and then sometimes to do series like we're currently doing where we'll move through a passage but we'll draw connections between different parts of the Bible to put the whole picture together. Either way, expository preaching, going through a passage or expository teaching in your home group, going through a passage, that's key. And Paul says he does it in different contexts. He does it publicly in the marketplace or the lecture halls and from house to house. Most likely that means in church because churches used to meet in large houses. What that means for us is that teaching will involve not just, uh, well, it won't just happen in the public gathering like this, but also in our growth groups, in our children's and youth programs, in one-to-one mentoring, and of course in our private devotions. The point being that we must see that the heart of Christian ministry and leadership is opening the Word of God up with people. It's not the whole of Christian ministry, but it is the heart of it. Because it's through the Spirit who takes the Word of God that God speaks to us, you see. It's through opening up the Word of God and sitting under it that Christ is ruling us. And we are being his people. So what do we preach and teach? Well, if you look at how this section begins and ends, verse 20 to 27, you can see the parameters of the teaching. So verse 20, I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful. So helpful is one parameter. Verse 27, I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So proclaiming the whole will of God. Now, let's think about that. First of all, helpful. All scripture we know is helpful, but of course in the ebb and flow of life, there will be times when some parts are more helpful than others. So, for example, you know, at this point in time, I had planned to do a series on you know, sexuality and relationships. Well, it became clear about five weeks ago that a more helpful thing for us at this point in time would be to hear what God is teaching all of us about shepherding, about pastoral leadership. So I ditched one temporarily because something else was more helpful. So we have to teach that which is helpful. But the other parameter is to teach the whole will of God, drawing from material right across the Bible. And that's why in any given year, when we plan out the preaching program, there will always be bits and pieces from the different genres in the Bible. So there will always be a series from Old Testament narrative stories and something from Old Testament wisdom literature and something from the Old Testament prophets who look forward to the coming of Christ. And then there'll always be something from the Gospels, a series on Jesus, uh, life, death, resurrection. And there'll always be, we'll always go through some part of a major epistle. Okay. God's given us in the Bible a very mixed diet of different types of literature, and we need it all, and we need to realize we need it, and it needs to be taught. So we'll go through it all. But... The point is, always elders shepherd the flock by teaching from the Bible. That's how it's done. And actually, Paul's more specific because, of course, we know there are lots of Bible teachers out there, but not everyone teaches the truth. And, of course, knowing that might scare us up from the responsibility of ever stepping into the role of being an elder. How do you get it right? 
Paul gives clarity. First on the response, so verse 21, he says, I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. Repentance and faith, they're the two responses that Paul is always looking for. Notice what it's not. It's not primarily that people would be moved, although that can be good. It's not primarily that there'll be a large growth in numbers or that he'll attract a big crowd, although, of course, that's always good. What he's looking for primarily are the two responses of repentance and faith. And when I'm speaking on the Word of God, they're the two responses I'm looking for, that whether you're a Christian a believer in Jesus or not, everyone would respond by turning towards God and faith in Jesus. Okay, so if you're not yet a believer, the goal is that you take that singular step, that moment when you stop walking away from God in your life and you repent, you turn around. That's what literally the word means, to turn in your minds. Um, that you turn and not do things your own way, just because you want to, but you turn and actually think, I need to do things God's way. And you're walking in that way. As far as sin is concerned, you'll be walking down the road of living your life your own, own way without God, not really caring about what he wants you to do. But then you'd come to that point where you go, no, I need to turn. And I need to go from that road which leads to hell and I need to start turning to God and turn to him and walk that way that leads to eternal life. As far as sin is concerned, as far as faith, actually, it's the same process. So you're, instead of trusting in yourself and just doing whatever you want or trusting in some, someone else who's not Jesus, you actually say, no, I need to now put my trust in Jesus. He is my saviour. I will walk with him. Okay, it's really two sides of the one coin, repentance and faith. Now, I reckon we need to get clarity on this, that this is the sought-for response because we can get confused. We can think, oh, if somebody's just moved to believe that God is real, then they've become a Christian. But they haven't if they haven't repented and trusted in Jesus. But if we say that they have, you see, well then their feeling will go and they'll think, well, I tried that, it didn't work. No, 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 no. <laughs> what Paul's after is that deep, deep um, depth of will change, repentance, turning to God and faith. They're the desired response in someone who's not a believer, but they're also the des desired response in a believer. So, you know, a believer is someone who, who actually has already turned, but you'll notice that when you walk, there's always a part of your body that points back that way, right? So, so too with a believer, when you're walking in a step with the Spirit, there's always a pull back. There's some part of your life which you want to think, no, 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 I want to go back the other way. That's why when we come under God, we need to have soft hearts, we need to be open to hearing His Word correct us, and repent, and actually believe, no, the way that God has said is best, I'll trust him in this. Repentance and belief. All right. So Paul gives his elders clarity on the response needed. Secondly, Paul gives clarity on expectations. He says, verse 22, And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, 
not knowing what will happen to me there. We don't know how he was compelled. Maybe it was an audible voice, go to Jerusalem. Um, Maybe it was just in the ebb and flow of God's sovereignly opening and closing doors in our lives, which he does. We don't know how he was compelled. But he's compelled to go there. Um, um, He had a ministry to... um, to bring a a sort of an offering to the Jewish believers in Jerusalem. They were in famine, actually there was a famine there, from the Gentile believers around the world. And it was a great expression of the unity of the gospel. And he needed to go and deliver this. It was an outworking of of the gospel. And he then also wanted to plan future missionary trips. So anyway, so he's, he's on the way, but then he's He's clear on expectations. Verse 23, I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. He doesn't know what's going to happen except that there'll be hardship. Now, of course, um, expanding, planting churches, doing evangelism, it will try and mitigate the risks, but the reality is it's going to involve hardship. Like, you just need to be aware that's what it will be, be about. Uh, Mark and I, I think on the leaflet uh, Mark's written up, uh, we were at a church planting conference um, recently, uh, which was wonderful. There was a fellow from Scotland who'd come out for this conference in um, just north of Sydney. And he just was interviewed up the front and he related how within his denomination in Scotland, because, because the denomination as a whole had, had rejected the Bible's clear teaching on marriage... Um, there are about 20 pastors within that denomination who wanted to remain true to what the Bible said. The, the bishops in that denomination kicked, kicked them out. They, they lost their church buildings. They couldn't meet there anymore. They lost their houses where they met, where they lived. Um, they were treated pretty terribly. And then they had to sort of meet in buildings like this. And we think, well, we've, we've never had a church building. This is fine. Um, what's the problem? He said, it has taken its toll. He said, one guy is now burnt out. A few of us are close to it. Um, some are on antidepressants. Most of us have been poorly treated, very anxious now, going to church. And um, as well as that, some, you know, there's one guy who's suffering post-traumatic stress because how badly he's been treated by his bishops in church. Could you believe it? When we hear that, we think, well, surely that's a reason to stop, isn't it? Isn't that a reason to stop preaching about Jesus, you know, stop sticking to what the Bible says, um, stop thinking about church planting? No, no, no. This guy was actually out in Australia trying to learn from Australians about how to do church planting because he thought around the world we're people who are actually trying to do it and we're doing it. For Paul, it's, it's entirely the other way around from how we naturally think. He says, I know hardships are facing me and the future is uncertain, but I'm compelled by the Spirit and I can't stop. I must keep going. And can I say that's exactly the same with us. You know, last year, the great news we found out was that 100 churches were planted around Australia. Praise God. Isn't that great? What's disheartening is that in the same time, 500 churches were shut. Now, if you have any desire at all for God's name to be honoured in Australia, that must grieve your spirit that that's happened. We have to keep on doing the work of evangelism, church planting, growth. Um, Even if it involves hardship. I was on the phone to uh, one of our gospel workers working with CMS overseas a couple of weeks ago. And um, 
she was saying, honestly, Chris, you haven't yet, um, you haven't yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. You know, if you think you're having a difficult time, get perspective. It's going to be hard. You know, okay, so it's good to be clear on expectations. Next thing, Paul, uh, sorry, this is Paul's attitude, verse 24, I consider my, my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. And so here he gives us clarity on the next thing, which is the gospel, the good news of God's grace. Now, most of us know the word gospel means good news, and we might think that that therefore means everything in the Bible, because isn't that all good? No, the Gospel doesn't mean everything in the Bible. It has content. Paul summarizes the gospel as the gospel of God's grace or God's kindness, his generosity towards us in Christ. If we were to go to somewhere else like Romans chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, you'd see very clearly what the content of that is. It's not something that we get to make up the content of. It's God's gospel, not our gospel. It's God's gospel. Uh, Paul refers to the gospel of God regarding his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The gospel, in other words, is the message which is all about Jesus, about who he is. Paul summarizes Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus, the real historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, born to Mary whose Christ, that is the promised king who saves, our Lord, the risen divine ruler, the judge of all. That's who he is. And also it's about what he has done. So Mark chapter 1 verse 14, Jesus proclaimed the gospel, proclaiming that he's, God has sent his king, the king for everyone. 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel is the news that Jesus died for our sins. Romans chapter 1 verse 4, the gospel is the news that Jesus rose from the dead as ruler. Romans chapter 2 verse 16, the gospel is the news that he will return to judge. That's Paul's gospel. He came as our king, he died for our sins, he rose to rule, he'll return to judge. That's really helpful because it's telling me if I manage to talk to someone and manage to get the God word out, <laughs> but I haven't spoken about Jesus, I haven't shared the gospel. If I've taught from the Old Testament and spoken about the Lord but haven't spoken about Jesus, I've not shared the gospel. If I have taught and spoken about the wonderful, the necessary, the essential work of the Holy Spirit in our life, but I haven't spoken about God's Son, I haven't shared the gospel, right? The gospel is all about God's Son. He came as our King. He died for our sins. He rose to rule. He will return to judge. Now, this last one is one bit that we often leave out. But it's there. Check it out. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Judgment is part of Paul's gospel. And in fact, when you think about it, the words grace, the words forgiveness, the words salvation, they have no meaning unless there's actually a day of judgment which we are given grace from, saved from, forgiven for. Now, Paul summarizes the gospel not in a harsh, harsh, harsh message, but as the gospel of grace. And that tells us how we're to speak about it, not in bullying overtones, um, but with grace, because it's, it's really good news. Um, it's not bad news, it's good news for people. Good news actually worth celebrating. 
Uh, wonderful news for every sinner, be we greedy people or slanderers or people who've sinned sexually. The great news is that God has sent us a king who can take charge of us and who's died for our sins and who's risen to free us from the judgment to come. How good is that? This is good news for everyone. Okay, so we can share it with grace. Fourth, be clear on your responsibility. Verse 25, he says, Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And therefore, I declare to you today, I am innocent of the blood of any of you. That phrase, innocent of the blood, it comes from Ezekiel 33, where God uses the imagery of a watchman who's appointed over workers who go out to work beyond a city's walls. So the workers will go out to the fields, and then they'll appoint a watchman who will stand in a little raised platform, just watching, that's their job, so that if they see enemies, enemy soldiers approaching, they can sound the alarm, the workers can hurry back into the, the, the walled city, the gates are shut, they're safe. That's the job of the watchman. Okay. In Ezekiel, God tells Ezekiel, I'm appointing you the watchman to tell people that I'm the one coming over the hill. I'm going to come in judgment. But I want people to know that I'm coming and I want people to know that I've appointed you so that you will tell people that I'm coming so that, therefore, if you warn people and they don't listen, it's not your fault. You know, you'll be saved, they'll be destroyed, but I'm not going to hold you accountable for their, their deaths. You're innocent of people's blood. However, if you're the watchman and you don't warn them, although you'll be saved, their blood will still be on your head. So Ezekiel had this massive responsibility to warn people of the judgment to come. And Paul picks up that imagery and he says says to the elders, I want you to know I'm innocent of the blood of all people because remember, I've never shirked away from the truth in warning people of the wrath to come. Now, it seems to me in our culture, this is the bit we don't say and we need to find a way to do it. I think the way to speak of judgment is to speak of it with yourself in the frame. That is, you can say, look, I'm in serious danger of the wrath of God. I'm selfish, I'm lustful, I, I gossip. I'm envious, I get angry. I don't know about you, you're probably different, but I'm, I'm in serious trouble. I mean, I ignore God, the way I treat him is terrible. I can't even love my wife and my kids with a selfless heart, let alone God, who I treat appallingly. Now, normally, when you speak honestly about your own deficiencies, people will then say, well, me too. <laughs> and then you can say, the wonderful thing is that even though I have treated God so badly. He loves us all so much. He offers a way out. I'd love to tell you about it. In our culture, we have to find a way of doing this. And remember, if you, like me, if you've missed opportunities and now those, those are going through your minds, remember that we have someone who shed his blood for the blood that splattered up against us because we didn't speak. What a relief. But Paul nevertheless tells to the, says to the elders, you've got to teach the gospel. That's the main way you shepherd your people. Secondly, you've got to guard the flock. In verse 28, Paul speaks, turns from speaking of his own ministry to giving them specific instructions now of the elders. He says, the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, overseers of the flock. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. Now, you might be the leader of a home group. It's not your group. Uh, I'm the sort of 
head elder, if you like, of this church. It's not my church. It's God's church. It's God's home group. We don't own it. He bought it. That's why he owns it. He bought it with the precious blood of his son. And that makes his church his treasured possession. And now he entrusts the care of his treasured possession to the care of the elders. And he says to them, you have to shepherd the flock. That's your job. Now, that content of that word, of course, we've been looking at it for several weeks. It comes from Ezekiel 34. We covered that in the first week. What does it involve? Seeking out new sheep, that's evangelism. Feeding the flock, that's teaching. Judging between greedy and vulnerable sheep, that's governing. And then he says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and not spare the flock. Now, I don't know if you've been on a sheep farm and seen what happens when a wild dog gets in. Um, it's pretty gruesome. You come across a sheep with its throat ripped out and blood everywhere. That's the imagery Paul uses. But it's even more frightening than that. Verse 30, even from among your own number, people will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. He says, so be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. So he's saying the real danger, you see, for our church is not the non-Christians, not the secular, secular atheists, it's not the Muslims out there. They're not going to lead people astray, you know, because they don't believe in Jesus. It's the false teachers within. Because they'll want to separate from the others and draw disciples after them point, beware the teacher who wants to separate. Beware, it's normally guised as this, and this has proved out over history, that someone will say, no, 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 we're the true, authentic, spiritual ones. We are above those other ones. Um, as if none of the other people were ever authentic in their faith with God, and as if there's no hypocrisy here at all. You know, like, What? <laughs> Beware the false teacher who wants to separate and draw disciples after them. The truth is any one of us could become a savage wolf. That's why in verse 28 he tells the elders, keep watch over yourselves and then over all the flock. No te uh, teacher's teaching should be above question. You know, it is right if you think I'm teaching what's wrong for you to say that. And to call me to account, it is right that I do it for you. No teacher's teaching is with, you know, not open to scrutiny. Not so that there can be power, not so that there can be micromanaging going on, but because the responsibility of guarding the flock rests on the shoulders of the elders. And they have to do the job. Too much is at stake. I think it's massively sobering that Paul predicted these things as occurring in a church even though he had been pastoring there for three years. The great apostle Paul who wrote much of the New Testament, he'd invested himself again. I mean, imagine sitting under Paul's preaching for three years. You'd think you'd be pretty mature. And he said of that church, savage wolves will arise from among you. And then if we look further in the New Testament to 1 and 2 Timothy, where Timothy's now in charge of the same church. And we look to what Jesus said 
in the letter to Ephesus in the, church, in the book of Revelation, we see that this is exactly what happened. False teachers who had real names, who were known to the people, Hymenaeus and Philetus, they denied key truths, they destroyed people's faiths and they would have been liked. Beware. Always teach the gospel. That's how you shepherd. Guard the flock. And finally, use the word of grace. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, he says, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. How, how can Paul now leave? Well, he can leave because God is real and also because he's leaving them the word of grace. This is powerful because of whose word it is. It is God's. And it is effective because it can build you up and give you an inheritance amongst those who are sanctified. He can move on precisely because the word of grace is powerful and it is effective when used. Paul himself modelled the word of grace. You know, Ephesus as a city was obsessed by wealth, but verse 33, Paul says, when I was with you, I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. In fact, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. He wasn't paid. Now, elsewhere, 1 Corinthians 9, he will argue there is a place to pay some elders. That's okay. But for Paul, in his apostolic ministry of church planting, he deliberately denied himself that right so that no one could say, you're in it for the money. It was more important for him that he actually conduct his ministry, which was, it gave no room for anyone to say, you're just in it for what you can get. In fact, he worked a second job, his main job was church planning, but he, he had a second job, the great apostle Paul, great teacher of being a tent maker, which involved tanning, working with leathers, which involved mixing in dog poo into war hides. It was revolting, awful work. But he did it, why? To raise funds for his ministry companions, people like Timothy, so that they wouldn't be a drain on others. Isn't that incredible? That's massive. He understood grace, in other words. It came out in his life. And then in the final, the final word, what's he going to say is the last, the last thing he says to them. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Um, the last thing he wants them to remember, the elders to remember, is that being an elder is about giving, not receiving. Um, if you're in it just for what you can get, you shouldn't be in it. It's about giving. Um, Jesus is more interested. God has more favour for people who give than who receive. That's how you shepherd. That's how a church is to be pastored. Three points. Always teach the gospel. Guard the flock. Use the word of grace. It's not rocket science, but it's really powerful when it's done and when it's lived. Let me demonstrate that power just by finishing as we re read the response. Verse 36, when Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. And then they all wept 
as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. And then they accompanied him to the ship. He's passed on the charge. He said, this is how I did it. And he laid it all out. And then he said, that's what you've got to do. Always teach the gospel. Guard the flock. Use the word of grace. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that by your grace, in your mercy, you would protect this group, our church, from false teaching within. We pray, uh, praise you for the shepherds in the past. We pray for shepherds in the future. We pray from this group that you would raise up people who would be elders, uh, who would shepherd, pastor, either this flock or others. But loving God, we pray that you'd place us all under your care and protection. We do pray for all those within our church charged with the job of shepherding and ask that you would be with them and help them to teach well the whole will of God, that which is helpful, to guard the flock and to use the word of grace always in their lives so it works through to their whole life, their actions, the way they think, the way they behave. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.